I'm Phaedra Polychronis. And I'm Sarah Goldblatt. And this is the sixth episode of Low Point, the podcast about hitting rock bottom and what comes next. I'm gonna die. This is this is how it ends. I had nothing. Then I I got even worse. I felt more and more isolated from everyone around me and I'm getting sadder and sadder about it. That sort of sent me into a tailspin. Everyone has a dark chapter. Today we're gonna talk to Amanda Payton, a tech entrepreneur. Amanda's gonna talk to us about failure, being consumed by work, and selling her first company. Amanda, thanks for coming in. We're here to talk about low points, obviously. And maybe we can start, sometimes we used to end with this, but now we're starting to start with this. Okay. How, um... Well, wait, I just have a question that you could cut in later. I would like to know how you're able to talk about low points when it's so sunshine, beautiful all the time here, and I just feel like my best self here in Los Angeles. That's a really good point. Well, we're definitely our best selves here, but relative, I mean, it's relative. What are we? Right, are we? <laughs> and I think sometimes the darkness you carry within and the contrast with yeah. how persistently gorgeous it is outside can somehow make your darkness feel even darker. Yeah. Is that true, though? Yes. I, when I've been sad, it's so much easier to be sad in gloomy, stormy weather. Yeah. Because you feel in harmony with your surroundings. Right. When you feel completely, like, off. Yeah. Just, like, on another plane from your surroundings, you feel even more alienated than you already do. No? Yeah, alienated. But not sadder. Right, but alienation is not the best feeling. <laughs> Well, I guess that's a good segue. Segue. And it's also, right. I mean, that's a really good point. Also, the sun's about to set. I mean, today's particularly nice. I know. I'm sorry. We should we should black out the windows. Yeah, I mean, if you want us to bum you out, I don't know. Yeah, we can I think black it'll out happen. I mean, you're you're all in black today. <laughs> Fully in black. Yep. yep. Um, all right. But so, okay. This is our only actual like specific question that we ask across the board, then it's very fluid, but how would you define as a dictionary entry the expression low point? Yeah. Noun. I would define a low point. Well, I don't like to start out this way because I think that I will out myself as a tech person. But if you... Think about your general mental state as operating somewhere between, say, four and eight all the time. And some days you're a five and some days you're a seven. And, you know, very, very rarely you get to nine and ten. And those are the days that you write about in your diary. I would define a low point as a consistent period of ones and twos. Okay. That's the most numeric definition we've had by far. Yeah. And you're the only, you're our first tech. Oh, great. Tech candidate. Fantastic. Tech. <laughs> Fantastic. So is is there a clear period when you, when you discuss this, like, consistent period of ones and twos? Is it obvious to you what chapter of your life that is? For me, yes. It's very obvious because my behavior changes a lot. I am someone who likes to do stuff. And there have been two particular periods in my life when I have not felt compelled to do stuff, to, like, leave the house, go out, get work done, etc. And they were both following big professional changes. And the behavior that goes along with it is staying in the house, 
watching, you know, between 10 to 12 hours of television and eating a lot of fried chicken and and that's pretty much the behavior. And so I've had two periods of that in my life. And by period you mean like months long. Okay. Okay. We're so which one should we talk should we talk about both? Yeah, I think that they were very different, but in some ways they were similar. Um, they happened at different times. One was in 2011, one was in 2014. And they were both surrounding professional events as opposed to personal. So I think that some people are very affected by personal changes in their life. But for me particularly, it has been the, the low points as, as I think, uh, you have defined it have been around two big professional uh, uh, related events. And would you would you identify these events as inherently negative or, or traumatic? Well, that's an interesting question because I think that there's objective trauma and then I think that there is personal trauma. Um, so... Objective trauma is the death of a parent, for example. It's just very, very traumatic, and everybody can agree about that. Um, but for me, the two big events were, I would say, from an outsider's perspective, not particularly traumatic, maybe, on the objective scale. But to me, they were very, um, uh, they were very shocking and intense to deal with, I think, because I don't think that I was equipped for the downside of the sort of emotional roller coaster of starting a company and having it fail or starting a company and then selling it and it's not yours anymore, etc. The first one, as I said, was in 2011. So I was, let's see, I was 27. Mm. No, yeah, I was 27. And I had built websites in the past and um, I had started this company and I went through this uh, very exciting program in uh, Mountain View called Y Combinator and, and that was this very exciting moment for me and I felt like I had all of these advantages and I felt like I had been given a shot. Like, here's your shot. Like, you can you can sub in and play in the fourth quarter, like that kind of thing. And so I started this company, and, and it just... Tell us more about the company, though, we, I, at this point. Yeah, so the company was called Message Party, and it was a, a local chat application. The, the tagline was chat where you're at. And it was a way to chat with people around you. So, for example, if you're in a hotel lobby, you can chat with other people in the hotel that, lobby. Does that app kind of exist now? Well, so this is the app idea that never dies and never takes off. So mm. there's always people working on it. There's always people who want to crack it. There's always, you know, a few apps in the market that are doing something similar. But what I learned, and I'm not sure if others who've tried have learned this, but... Strangers don't really like to just have an open way to chat with each other. Is the idea that it's it's within a specific spot? It's like okay, this is the charm for the lobby of the Line Hotel. Yes. So we worked on that for about nine or ten months, um, and then we ran out of money. Mm. Yeah. So it was very sad. <clears throat> I put all my savings into this app, and it was gone. 
Uh, and so after that, I had no more money left and I, this company had no more cash. And so we had to shut it down and, uh, yeah. And then I had to look for a job, but I wasn't sure that I really wanted a job. And so I started doing some consulting and then just mostly spent a lot of time hanging out in my apartment. Did you, so out of curiosity, I mean... San Francisco is just like filled with people. I'm not San Francisco, but you know, Mountain View, wherever. Yeah. It's filled with people doing startups. And it seems like there's a culture of failure where like yes. everybody it's has been through. It's almost a pin that. on your badge. What's the expression? A, me- a, a medal badge, on your chest? A badge on your badge on your roster? It's it's yeah. true. It's true, but I also think that that is a little bit of lip service. I think that it's way better to be successful yeah. than it is to have failed. But uh, it's like the narrative of like Zuckerberg dropping out of Harvard. Like real real success stories are incredibly familiar with failure or sort of right. Right. For sure. For sure. But I also think that a lot of that maybe builds up, you know, a month of hard times or Mm -hmm. two months of hard times into this, like, massive chasm of terrible struggle. Right. And uh, in reality, companies that just fail and you never hear about them aren't the ones that become legendary, necessarily. And that was clearly front burner in your mind at that point for sure for sure and and I think that uh I was I had a lot of ideas about how I thought it was going to grow and how I thought it was going to work but there was no way to make money and so that I think was was something also that was quite difficult about it Um, that was fundamental you mean in the design there there was no way that you were going to generate no I mean apps like that this idea is very similar to a bunch of other apps I mean Snapchat started out this way for example where the business plan is to get big enough that you can sell advertising right that seems like the only yeah option yeah well, but, you know, a, a company like uh, Airbnb, for example, they make money from day one. Right. And so that, I think, was was also very difficult is when we started to realize that we weren't going to get as big as we wanted to. Um, after that, we, we had to say, OK, we're going to we're going to run out of money. What should we do? Was the only source of funding at that point your your savings or did you have some angel investors? We had angel investors. They were great. They were so nice. But they weren't down for round two. No. I don't think that I was down for round two because I knew it wasn't working and I didn't really know why. And so I felt like I wasn't in a position. Like, if I was very emphatic and adamant about, you know, uh, this is how I think it's going to work and this is what needs to change. But I wasn't. I didn't know it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And and that was, I think that was the most frustrating part is it failed and I didn't really understand why. I mean, of course, now I can give you the 10 bullet points and say it was because of this and this and this and this and this. But at the time, I just felt like, I just don't know. So then you dove into fried chicken for yeah. months and months. Yep. I actually years. watched, so I watched every episode of Law & Order SVU starting from season one, episode one. How many se- are there? Like 12? No, there's I about... I think it's infinity. There's 25 infinity. seasons. <laughs> yeah. So back in 2011, there was probably like 19 seasons. 
So what, I mean, how did you, um, was it a slow slip into this or did you immediately start out with like 10 hours a day? Yeah. Just woke up was like, I don't want to leave the house today. I mean, I guess my question is, you would open your eyes in the morning. Was it an immediate sense of dread? Yes. Because you didn't know what you were doing. Correct. And the days feel very long. I think, like, I was really... One thing that I really struggled with was how to fill the day. Um, I think that's something I struggle with even now, where it's like, you know, a day off... What do you do? Oh, you go sit by the pool, and then you're sitting by the pool. You're like, well, well, now what do I do? What Mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do? Um, And so that, I think, was was the biggest thing was, okay, I'm not working on this thing. It's shut down. It's fully shut down. How How do I fill up a day? And so that was why I got into the TV stuff, because as a numbers person... You can say every episode is 43 minutes. So if I watch nine episodes, then that will, like, carry me through until I can go to sleep again. That's completely the mentality I have on, on like, an airplane, on, like, a long flight. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this flight will be three hours plus one meal and one hour of staring at the window or chatting the guy in 7B. So Schindler's List. and Schindler's List or Showa, if they had <laughs> every episode of Showa or episode, chapter. Um, so how many... Are we counting time now in, in seasons of uh, legal... Law and order. Law and order. How many seasons passed? How many... So... The rest of the year just sort of went... Um, I think we shut down the company in August, so that was like five months, September, um, August through through December. Then in 2012, I finally started to come around to the idea of maybe I can try again. Maybe I should start another company. Maybe this whole failure hero's journey thing is real and I can take this um, this experience of failure that I've had and I can turn it around and, and I have more experience now, etc. And um, so I started another company um and that was we didn't actually start talking about that until april of 2012 so it was me and then two uh business partners two co-founders so grand street we started it in june of 2012 and we worked on so this came from i think um my partners had also had worked on a social app previously and were also of the mindset that you have to have a site that makes money from the beginning. And so, um, so we all agreed on that. And then the idea, we spent a, a long time brainstorming and just decided that we should do something that we all thought was really exciting and cool. And so one of the things that came up was all of these emerging electronics. So connected home, the Nest thermostat had just come out, drop cam, et cetera. And so we wanted to create a better way to buy and sell these products. And so we started Grand Street and we spent probably four months or so working on the site itself. So getting products to sell and coming up with a launch plan, et cetera. And we launched the site in in the middle of December, 2012, which is the biggest month for buying electronics. And and so I think that if we had known better, we would have 
really busted our ourselves to oh to get it out a little to get earlier. it out a little mm-hmm. earlier. But again, it's you just don't know. And yeah. um, I mean, at this point now, having gone through it and looking at all the numbers, most um, electronics retailers make seventy percent of their annual sales in December. Wow! So it's huge. And so we just started raking in money. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is a gold mine. This is so amazing. We're doing so well, et cetera, et cetera. So the site launches and then Jan 1 rolls around and the numbers just crash. Right. Like just gone. Um, and and I mean, no, no investor, no, uh, no founder, no one who has ever worked in retail would feel bad for you about that. But for us, we were like, what the heck just happened? Where's the magic? Where's the magic? Where right. did all our customers go? And, and I think that that was, I mean, I knew that the numbers were going to collapse in January, but I did not know that it would it would be as stark as it was. I think that that was something I really learned the hard way was how much of a collapse happened in January. So, but it was okay because we had raised a seed round in December. And so we plotted along and we started to learn at that point, oh, this is like actually extremely seasonal and we're just going to do most of our business. One month a year. In November and December. And like, that's just how it's going to be. Father's Day was pretty big for us. Back to school was okay. But for the most part, in 2000, in the year... Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Big day for electronics. Um, In the year 2013, almost all of our revenues were in October, November, and December, around that time period. Um, Or at least a large proportion of them. Um, And so things were going really well, and we, we closed out 2013. And we started to think about how we wanted to change things. And, you know, I think the interesting thing about raising a million dollars is to someone who's never done it, it sounds like, it sounds like Scrooge money. It sounds like just the most amount of money you Mm -hmm. could ever fathom being in a bank account. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, But then the problem is that, first of all, all your friends stop doing favors for you because they know that you have money. And so it's like, oh, you know this thing that I did for free before? Well, now you have to pay me five mm-hmm. grand, 10 grand, 15 grand, whatever it is. And so it just, it just goes. I don't know what to say other than the money just goes. And you have, I think that, that in the startup world, you have people who just are okay with that and just spend money like, nobody's business and don't even care and then you have some people who are in denial about that and they become extreme cheapskates and then but the money still goes and so then you know they just try to hold on to it with as much as they can but it just goes and so for us we started to think about well you know we're going to have to raise more money and so just kind of thinking through how we're going to do that and then we got an acquisition offer. And, and the beginning of 2014 also was like hot season for, for tech companies acquisitions because that was right after Marissa Mayer bought Tumblr um, mm. at Yahoo. And yes, she bought Tumblr, but she also bought like 30 other companies. Like she was on an absolute buying spree. And so all of a sudden, all these other companies, yeah, all these other companies started to think, oh, maybe we should get more aggressive about M&A. 
And so we were sort of pursuing these dual paths of acquisition and then also raising money. And we went after both. Um, and then Etsy came in at the very, very, very end. And we had known them. And obviously, they're a very big deal company in New York. And so then... And, and also the offer that they made was very compelling and, and we had the sense that they were going to IPO sometime in the next two to three years. And so all of a sudden, all these things started to piece together. And so then we had to have the discussion, you know, do we want to sell? And, and that was interesting because I think that if I hadn't had the first failure, I would not have been as wounded. Like I felt extremely wounded by the failure. And so I wanted to say, you know what, like, I had this win and it's and and look at this it was a win etc cetera, etc cetera. and and that's true in the objective sense but after the deal closed I remember feeling like oh my gosh I am alone again in this like very bizarre kind of poetic way where I just kept thinking wait a minute I went through the same process but I felt like it was going to be better this time and and I was working all the time. And I mean, my my daily schedule was, you know, go to the office as soon as you wake up, stay there until you pass out. So maybe 11 or midnight, go home, go to sleep, wake up the next day, do it again. I really enjoyed Friday nights because I would go home at like maybe 7 or 8 p.m., and then I would immediately go to sleep and I would sleep for probably like 14 hours because I was so stressed out. And then I would just wake up on Saturday and go back to the office. And so I think at, at some point I was I was taking off one day a week. But in November and December when it was really high season, I mean, there was just no like no breaks, no Thanksgiving, no Christmas. That was also when I realized that if you work in electronics, like you just don't have holidays. So you sold it and suddenly it was just like time was no longer so neatly contained. It was just this slippery, yeah. loose thing. But you were still working at Etsy. At yeah, point. and so I was working at Etsy and I, and I think that a big part of it for me was feeling like I didn't have to fight the fight anymore. It was feeling like, oh my gosh, this company is so stable. Everybody goes home. Everybody has a life. They like talk about work-life balance and so then you were like life. Yeah, and where do I and that was begin and and that was I think a very bizarre moment is when I realized at age thirty that I didn't have any hobbies and I didn't have any opinions about how to spend my leisure time because my opinion was I don't want it. Who were the people in your life? I was dating someone and we broke up at the beginning of 2014. I had some friends who I saw very rarely because I was always working. And, you know, that friend who's always working, you, like, eventually stop texting them. Um, yeah. Family? Yeah, my family had moved to, across the country to California. So they were... In California, I was in New York, and then uh, my sister was in Boston. Um, so she was far; she wasn't super close, but she was around. Um, but yeah, it was really—it was this kind of weird, shocking moment of, oh, I spent all this time working on this company, and I had like the best possible outcome. What? 
what is wrong with me? Like, honestly, what, like that was the thought that I had in my head that time around was what is wrong with you that you feel like something is missing? And how did you resolve that or navigate that? Well, I, so I went back into the same routine. So I was working a regular job. So I would just go home after work and watch hours and hours of TV. And I would like stay home on weekends and wouldn't do anything. And this went on for probably two or three months. And then one day, it was Memorial Day, I remember, in 2014, I just woke up and I was like, screw this. Sucks. And so then I just decided that if I was going to be a a person, then I was going to get some hobbies. So I decided that I was going to just try all the hobbies. (laughs) Try the hobbies. (laughs) You have just a little book, like flipping through, fly fishing, backgammon, mahjong. Yeah. What? Mahjong? (laughs) So what did you, how did you, uh, you tried every hobby? Yeah, I would just ask people, what what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And I gave everything a weak chance. And if I liked it, then I would continue with it. So what did you get into? So I did hat making, millinery. Is that what it's called? <laughs> that is what it's called. I know a milliner, so I d- I did not do any hat making. No, um, I well, so I tried fashion design for a brief moment. <laughs> I got, so another one of my dormant ideas is I've been dying, and someone should steal this because I really want it to exist. I'm dying to make merino wool booty shorts. I remember you talking about that when I first met you. Yeah. So I was like on that for a while and I kind of went down the path on that. I may pick that up again. I just, I so love it so much. But that's not a hobby. That's another entrepreneurial (laughs) endeavor. I know. But I I That's just another inventor's idea. (laughs) God damn it. Slipped right into inventions. Um, You know that famous hobby, uh, designing (laughs) merino underwear and selling them on the internet. Yep. yep. The well-known pastime. <laughs> yep. So I did some cooking. I read a lot of astrology for two weeks. Mm-hmm. The hobbies did not bring me out of it at all. They were a lovely way to pass the time, much better than watching TV. But in the end, it was not the hobbies that made me feel better. It was acknowledging, I think, and allowing myself to be upset about something that I really judged myself for being upset about, and then just saying, this is what it's going to take to move on. Now let me go to my exercise cult. And (laughs) And then I have to horseback ride, then I have yoga later, flute, (laughs) flute lessons, pizza making workshop. (laughs) Right. And do you feel like now, you know, having had a job and a sabbatical is the is the inventor's bug um for sure itching at you oh for sure i think it's re- it's been really hard for me to not just jump into something and work on it because i i just yeah i i guess that's just how i see th- i see things i just go outside and i look around and i think oh is there a different way to do a street sign? Is is there a different way to have a seat in a car? Like, what if you, like, had a better cushion that, like, went around? Ama- do you ever think like that? Yeah. I mean, but, you know, we're not the same. Basically. I'm kidding. I don't know. I mean, I come up with Kramer ideas occasionally. 
But like like schemes. Like for example, let's just say hypothetically mm-hmm. that there was a specific type of wax that was neon pink that you put on your earlobe. So it's like not an earring, but it's still a statement right. on your earlobe. Mm. You could sell that as a new kind of makeup. Absolutely. Yeah. But what I'm saying is when I look at an earlobe, a human earlobe, I don't say, what could I hang from that? And how could I monetize it? And who can I pitch this to? I see an earlobe and I think about its texture and I I maybe think about how, like, funny it looks on someone's face. With wax on it? How cool it would look with me on wax? Yeah. It's just fascinating because it's, it's really, like, I would have to put, like, Amanda goggles on in order to see the world. You have some ideas as to what your next... Tons. You're, like, bursting at the seams. Pretty much. So, looking back on your low points, I mean, do you feel like they've rewarded you? Now, like, now that you're bursting at the seams is a lot of it. Well, I think I've always been bursting at the seams. I don't know. It's... I think that... A lot of people say that, oh, I wouldn't be who I was if if I didn't go through this period. But if I could make it go away, I would. Hmm. Um, and I think that that's probably very naive to say. It's refreshing to hear. Um, but yeah, I mean, who, like, do I, do I have it as a badge of honor that I've seen every episode of Law & Order SVU that's ever been aired? Not really. Look, I, I do think that there's something to be said about learning from failure. Um, I think it's made me a lot more willing to stand up for myself. I, I think that that has been um, that's something that has been a consistent issue for me is around digging my heels in and saying, I believe in this and I want to keep going, etc. Um, and so I think just being able to have perspective is very important. I think that a lot of the people I know who have had nothing but success just have no sense of perspective um, because they're just used to everything like going super well. Here's, I guess, how I would say it, is if I didn't have these low points, I think that I would be a l- way worse off. Mm-hmm. But I still wouldn't say that I would want to... Right. Opt in to going through them again. But do you think your darkest moments are behind you? Do we Do we all think that? Oh, that's a great question. I think that my best moments are ahead of me, so I guess I would have to say that I also believe my darkest moments are ahead of me. Ahead or behind? Ahead. Okay, everything's ahead. Yeah. Looking ahead. Again. Got to. I like that. I like that. Yeah. I think well, we're running perfect, on perfect time. timing. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any encapsulation? Wrapping up the interview, um, I mean, you're hired. Our, Don't get us. Our imaginary producers telling us where. All right. I guess. I guess what I would say is, I think that the best part of a low point, if I were to think about, you know, what I was telling myself during that time, is that the tiniest thing can feel like a step forward. So. When you get out of bed to go to the bodega across the street to buy a soda, you're like, this is great. 
this is progress. I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. Or or when you finally go on a date with someone, it's like totally a disaster date. But it's like, no, I went on this date. Like I took a shower and I brushed my hair and I like put some makeup on, but not too much because I'm not like that. And <laughs> I like went to the bar and I sat there and I had a terrible time, but like I did it. Yeah. Showing up. Yeah, I showed up. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, actually, now that we've gone through this whole arc, I think that my definition of a low point is when you stop showing up. I love that. So good. That's really yeah, good. Jesus Christ. We went from a numeric, also very powerful, but this that was great. That's it. You don't show up. You don't show up to the playing field. Yeah. Thank you for that softball. Amanda. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. This was something. Um, should we thank, should we do our rounds of thank yous? What are the rounds? Thank you, thank Amanda you for coming in. Oh, thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Tim Nordwin, for providing us with this beautiful studio as the sun is slowly setting. And thank you, Derek, wherever you are. Derek, for setting all of this up. <laughs>